begin with the end in mind. Perhaps you've heard the phrase before, you may not know its origin, or maybe you do. It's one of Stephen Covey's seven habits of highly effective people. Begin with the end in mind. And the gist of it is to give thought to what you want the finished product or the outcome to look like before you begin something new, before you even get started on it. Have an idea of what what it should look like when it's all wrapped up. To kind of help sink in the idea, if you were going to remodel a portion of your house or you were going to to put on an addition, you wouldn't just start the demolition and then once you've knocked out a couple of walls or put a few holes in walls, then decide, all right, now I'll just start building, I guess, and we'll see how it turns out. Before you did any of that, you would have blueprints drawn up, you would have plans drawn up so that you know exactly where you need to demolish and then where you need to rebuild or add on. Writers and movie producers and directors do the same thing. They don't just show up on a set or at their desk and say, I'm going to start writing. They have a general storyline in mind and have thought through how they want the story to wrap up or conclude. Even though there there might be an alternate ending or it might change over time, they have a basic idea of how it's going to end before they ever start. Begin with the end in mind. And it's true in in a lot of different areas of life. And I think it probably also has some merit for us as Christians as we consider the most important matter, our eternity and our spiritual life as well. And I wonder how often we reflect on or think about, either in the past or in the present, about what the end is like. If we begin with the end in mind, if we give thought to what the end is going to be like. Now, Some of you may conclude, well, that's not very necessary. It's pretty straightforward. We know exactly how it's going to play out. Heaven is what's waiting for us, and we know that Jesus is the only way to get there. What else is there really to consider? What else do we have to give thought to in the meantime? Well, I suppose that the thickness of God's word probably indicates that there's a little bit that we could spend our time giving thought to especially in light of of the devil's daily ambushes and attempts and efforts at seeking to undermine that very simple truth. And when you consider the things that Jesus taught, why did he teach so many of the same truths over and over again? Yes, even to believers and to his disciples to remind them, do not wander away, do not be wandering sheep, do not cut yourself off from the good shepherd. The vine and the branches need to stay connected together. Why did the Apostle Paul warn and encourage again and again about the dangers of forsaking or abandoning the good news of the gospel? And again, keep in mind, Jesus and and Paul were not just simply addressing unbelievers. They were talking to believers who knew what the end was, who knew that heaven was waiting for them through Jesus, and yet they still taught, they still warned, they still encouraged to stay on track. To make sure that they, they were mindful of how things were going to play out so that they knew which steps to take next. Jesus, in the words this morning from the gospel, gives us those, those steps, what to do next. I don't think we have to go back too far. Some of us may not remember this, but before you used to be able to just jump in the, the car and plug in the address in your phone and then just 
follow the directions as the voice prompts you, turn here, turn there, and, and you blind, you never looked at a, you don't look at a map anymore, right? You just follow the directions of your phone. But you remember, before we could do that, if somebody was giving you directions of how to get somewhere, they would describe things for you. Sure, they would lay out some street addresses, but, but there was a time where it was maybe as simple as saying, all right, you're going to want to veer this way, and, and when you get about a half mile, you'll see a grocery store, and then you take a, a right at the grocery store, and then you go about two miles, and you'll come across a big red barn, and that's where you want to turn right, and you'd follow those directions, those descriptions, because as you saw each marker, you knew what to do next. It showed you the way. Jesus' words this morning in the Gospel are the directions that, that give us the indicator of what to do next. And, and the whole section, and you can read the verses after as well, Jesus lays out for us all of the descriptions, all of the details uh, of the signs of what we're looking for as you just kind of reflect on these verses. What did he warn? He said there's going to be those who deceive. He says there's going to be wars, there's going to be uprising, there's going to be pestilence, there's going to be sickness, there's going to be persecution, there's going to be hatred, there's going to be even some who are put to death. Jesus is describing these signs so that you know what to do next. Spoiler alert. We've seen the signs. What do we do next? And that's where we realize that just as important as it is to begin with the end in mind is also the other encouragement that Jesus gives us this morning to make up your mind. I don't know that we value or appreciate what God has given us with our mind, with our brains, how, how wonderful, how amazing they are, how they set us apart from every other creature. The things that we take for granted, we don't even give a second thought to, that you can consider, that you can reflect on something, that, that you can reason, that you can rationalize, that you can imagine things, that you can envision things. That sets us apart from, from every other creature in creation. And there are a lot of things that our, our minds are, are capable of doing, but one of the most powerful things that we're able to do with our minds is to decide, to make a decision. No, don't worry, Pastor Bame's not going off the deep end and talking about decision theology, making a decision to believe in Christ. That's clearly not possible from Scripture, which describes us as being spiritually stillborn and, and, and hatefully uh, opposed to enemies of, of God. No. But there is something to be said for the power of, of the mind being able to make a decision or, or not make a decision. And I think far too many of us struggle with that element of being indecisive, of not being able to make up our mind. And don't realize actually how much stress and how much anxiety and how much worry that causes us simply being in that valley of indecision, not making up our mind. We don't want to do this. We're not sure if we want to do that. So we prolong it. We don't make any decision. And we don't realize how debilitating that is, how crippling that is when we don't make any decision at all. The fact of the matter is that, that even making the wrong decision usually finds us better off. 
You realize that? That if you looked back nine times out of ten, even when you made the wrong decision, you were in a better place because you at least made a decision that you could now tweak or adjust or respond according to accordingly rather than being in that middle place of no decision at all, not realizing how much that is heightening your stress and anxiety and your worry. If, if you take notes, make a note later today to spend 15 minutes just thinking back on some past decisions that you made. In hindsight now, you would say they were the wrong decision or it was a bad decision. And see how it actually ended up playing out. And yes, there are some big ones that certainly caused headaches and some inconveniences. But by and large, as you look back at all of those decisions you made, even when it was the wrong one, I'm guessing you'll realize that most of us do. Turns out it wasn't the end of the world. Even making a bad or the wrong decision was easily corrected or being able to adjust it and do a course correction. Now, that certainly has application in life in general, and I'm convinced that if we could simply be more decisive, we would probably rather quickly put a lot of pharmaceutical companies out of business because we wouldn't be as worried or anxious simply by being more decisive. But Jesus isn't just talking in general this morning. He's talking about a very specific decision. Listen to the decision that he encourages you and me and all believers to make that he spelled out in verse 14 of our text this morning. He says, Make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. Decide. Make the decision. Do not worry. And how refreshing are these words of Jesus. In a day and age where we are inundated with stress and worry and decisions that we have to make, more decisions than we've ever had to make because more information is fueled to us and filtered to us on a daily basis than at any point ever in history. And so we're inundated with decisions. And so we are, as I said, paralyzed without making decisions. Jesus says this is one area where you can be free of that. He says make the decision not to worry might be easier said than done. On what basis does Jesus say to us that we can make that decision not to worry? What's well, based on the very next promise that he makes in verse 15? For I will give you the words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You can decide not to worry about that last day, and not just in general, but but Jesus was speaking specifically that you don't have to worry about defending your faith. Remember, he said you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be hated, so we tend to worry about what am I going to say, what am I going to do in those cases. And he says, here's what you can do. Don't worry. Why is it so easy for us to, to share a social media Bible verse or a spiritual image? So easy for us to to wear a, a necklace with a cross or a, a shirt that has a cross on it. So easy for us to, to maybe display, proudly broadcast on a, a bumper sticker our faith to let others know we're a believer. But, but when it comes to actually telling, when it comes to actually speaking 
about Jesus, our Savior, we clam up like a, a little boy caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Why is it so unnatural for us to speak casually and comfortably about our Savior Jesus with other people? If you're going to carry out the other exercise I gave you, I'd encourage you to do the same with this. Take 15 minutes today to reflect on why you are worried about speaking about Jesus to others. Why that is such a terrifying, scary thing for you individually. And then take that worry captive to the promise that we just read from Jesus. The promise that says he will give you the words to speak. And be at ease with that. Realizing you don't need to sit and, and think through. You don't need to memorize some canned statement when somebody asks you about your faith or what you believe or about your Savior. But take to heart Jesus' promise that I'm going to give you the words. And not only that, not only am I going to give you words, but these words no adversaries are going to be able to contradict or stand against or oppose. And how can Jesus make that promise? Because you know the words that, that he gives to you. It's not just any words, it's the word. God's word. And that, dear friends, is truth as Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John's Gospel, chapter 17. Verse 17, Jesus says to his Father, Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. When Jesus gives you the words to speak, to defend your faith, to articulate who you believe in and why you believe in him and why you have the confidence of eternal life, he is going to give you the words of truth. Now, do you think that when you speak those words and somebody dismisses them, somebody refutes them, somebody rejects them, let me ask you, are those words any less true? Absolutely not. Jesus' word alone is truth. And he promises to give you the words to defend and to articulate your faith. And, and not only that, but knowing that those words are truth, even if many will reject it, even if many will dismiss the truth that you share, since it is the truth, it's also the only means by which anybody else is going to come to see and believe in Jesus as their Savior. So you have nothing to lose and everything to gain with a full confidence of the truth of God's Word that He will give you to speak when you defend your faith. And you know this word is true. You personally know it's true. Because when this word tells you that your sin separates you from God, you know it's true. When the truth of this word reflects that there is nothing you can do to repair that rift between you and God, that your sin, that my sin has caused, you know that that's true. When God's word tells you and me that our sins deserve only one thing before a righteous and holy God, and that is damnation, that is condemnation, that is judgment, you know in your heart of hearts that that is true. But by God's grace, he has also opened your eyes to know a greater truth. A truth that Jesus was alluding to when he spoke later on about what's going to happen in the face of persecution said, you'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. 
Now, you know that Jesus wasn't limiting that just to a, the promise of avoiding physical death. Because he had just explained, some of you will be put to death. And we know history has shown us that. And still in the present day and age, we know that Christians are being put to death solely because of their faith. And yet Jesus promises that a hair of your head will perish. In other words, you will not be condemned. You will not serve the punishment that your sins deserve. How could Jesus be so confident of this? Because Jesus knew that he came into this world to bear the brunt of that judgment. To carry out the sentence that our sins deserved. And let that sink in. Who is speaking these words of promise? It's Jesus himself telling you, make up your mind not to worry. It's Jesus himself telling you that a hair on your head will perish. Doesn't that mean a lot more coming from him because he knew that he was the reason that promise could be made good? That he knew the judgment and condemnation that that you and I deserve? That he knew that you weren't going to get that and wouldn't have to worry about that because it was going to be placed on his shoulders and on his back? That he was going to bear the brunt of damnation? That he was going to be the one from whom the Father would turn his face so that you would never have to worry about the Father turning His face from you. The very one giving these promises to you and me, to the believers in in Luke's Gospel, is the one who, who made good on them, who delivered on them. So we can be at peace. As Jesus encourages us in the last section here, in verse 19, we can stand firm and know that we will win life. Why? Because he lost his life. Judgment Day is not a day of of fear or dread. We can begin or continue with the end in mind because we already know the verdict. And we can take to heart then Jesus' promise and his encouragement to us to make up our minds not to worry. Because Jesus, the one encouraging us with that promise, is the one who would make good on it. Dear friends, look forward to that, that day when Jesus returns without worry, without trepidation, but with complete confidence in the work that your Savior has done for you, for me, and to all who trust in him. Amen.